Welcome to the church family that is lifting lives through living love, inspiring hope, filling with faith, and transforming our world. These recorded messages are made available so that you might have additional opportunities to stay connected with us, and then you might learn and grow in your faith. God bless you as you hear the word today. And now, the message. Our scripture comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verses 17 through 27. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, Son of God, who is to come into this world. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. So you may have been wondering what this chart is on the whiteboard behind me. I'm going to take you back to uh, maybe your freshman year of English, or at least that was when it was for me that I read my first real Shakespeare play. And this diagram was presented as a way of understanding how you know a Shakespeare story is told in five acts. Now, choir, I'm going to speak in advance. You're going to have to probably watch the screen a lot today. Otherwise, you're just looking at the back of the whiteboard here. So anyway, so this is the way that, you know, a Shakespeare play is told. At the very beginning, you have an introduction and, you know, you meet some of the main characters and then some conflict is introduced. And then the tension begins to rise and build uh, until it reaches the climax the OCD in me was going to drive it crazy. The climax was half a race. The L was. So then comes the climax. Excuse me. Eek. There. All better now, right? <laughs> Anyways, then the climax happens. And then it's kind of like, you know, the, the domino is cast and, and, the, and everything, you know, the line, the chain, kind of all the falling action takes place until you reach the end, the denouement, which is kind of when the moral of the story is presented and all the loose ends are wrapped up together. That's a Shakespeare play. So let me give you an example. Romeo and Juliet, right? Romeo and Juliet starts with an introduction. We meet... Romeo and Juliet, and they meet each other, and it is love at first sight. Except there's a conflict. The conflict is that their families do not like each other. I mean, like, which is like a, a gross understanding. Like, this is Hatfield McCoy type stuff. The Montagues and the Capulets, they are at war with each other. And then comes the rising action. As, as, you know, Romeo and Juliet form, fall more madly and madly in love, their families are pulling further and further apart until you finally reach the climax when Tybalt, Juliet's cousin, kills Mercutio, Romeo's best friend. And in retaliation, Romeo kills Tybalt. And then he is banished from Verona 
And before he has to leave, he and Juliet are wed in a secret wedding at night that no one else knows about. All that takes place in the third act. And then comes the falling action because Juliet's family doesn't know that she's already married to Romeo and they plan to marry her to Paris. But she doesn't want to marry Paris. And so to get out of it, she fakes her death and she writes a note to Romeo explaining what she's doing, except the note never reaches Romeo. Dramatic irony. And when Romeo comes to her tomb and sees her dead, he kills himself. And then when she wakes up, and sees him dead, she kills herself. And then finally we get the denouement, when the friar reveals to the two families that they were secretly wed and they realize what their feud has done to them and they resolve right then and there to end their conflict. Hence, Romeo and Juliet, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for this walk down memory lane. Uh, if, no, I don't need applause. If I came out in Shakespeare garb, and did the balcony scene, that I would accept applause for, but no. Anyways, but that's, that's the basic structure. And, and Shakespeare, while he was a master of this particular plot structure, he didn't create it. It existed millennia before him, going all the way back to Greek and Roman civilization and some of the plays that were written at that time. And I want to make the case with you today that John's gospel follows much of this same structure. John makes use of this literary structure as he tells the story of Jesus. In John's gospel, there are 21 chapters, which means the chapter that we just read, chapter 11, falls directly in the middle of John's gospel. And everything that comes, and, and it kind of divides the action of John's gospel in half. Because everything that comes before are the signs and wonders of Jesus' ministry, his public ministry. And then everything that comes after is the passion story. Beginning in chapter 12, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, chapters 13 through 17, the upper room, chapters 18 and 19, his trial and crucifixion, chapters 20 and 21, his resurrection and his appearance to the disciples. All that comes after. And what are the signs and wonders? Well, you know, John is particular among all the gospel writers that when he talks about the miracles of Jesus, he describes them not just as miracles, but as signs as things that point us to a deeper reality, a deeper truth, who Jesus really is. And there are seven of them. Can you name any of them? What's the first sign in John's gospel? I'll give you a hint. It happens at a wedding at Cana, turning water into wine. Shout it out, choir. You know, <laughs> I can hear you behind me. It's turning water into wine, okay? There's three different healings. There's the healing of the nobleman's son, there's the healing of the paralyzed man who's laying beside the pool. He can't get in the pool before the, all the others do. And so he keeps missing out on his chance to be healed. And then there's the healing of a man born blind. So that's four of the three healings and the water and the wine. Can you name any others? Feeding the 5,000. Thank you, Joyce. Feeding the 5,000. He walks on water. That's six. And then number seven, ding, 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 is the raising of Lazarus. Now, why is that important? Because in Hebrew numerology, seven represents completion. And so here in the middle chapter of John's gospel, we have the seventh 
sign and wonder that represents the completion of this first part, this first half of John's gospel. Now, so that's the structure, right? What's the conflict of the story? Well, the conflict of the story is rejection. John spells it out at the very beginning in his prologue. He came into the world, but the world did not receive him. The world didn't recognize him, but to all who did receive him, he gave the right and power to become children of God to those who believed on his name. And so the the key moment of rejection where this story kind of takes off is the cleansing of the temple, which all the other gospel writers put at the end of Jesus's ministry after the triumphal entry after, you know, the day after, you know, Palm Sunday, Jesus goes to the temple on Monday and casts out all the money changers, but not in John's gospel. In John's gospel, it happens all the way at the beginning in the second chapter. Why? Because John wants to make it clear from the very beginning that this is the theme, that the people Jesus came to save will reject him. And then this tension continues to build, build, build with every sign and wonder that Jesus performs. His fame, his popularity grows. And as his fame and popularity grows, he becomes more and more of a threat to the Jewish leaders. And they in turn become more and more of a threat to him until it reaches finally the climax in John chapter 11, which we're going to see that after this final wonder at that point, the Jewish leaders resolve, there's, we can't allow this to go on. We have to do something about this Jesus. Which explains for me a curious part of the story, something I always wondered about. If you're familiar with the story, Jesus receives a message from Mary and Martha that says, the one you love, Lazarus, the one you love is sick and close to dying. And scripture is clear that Jesus loves Lazarus. He loves Mary, he loves Martha. And yet when he receives the word, For two days, he doesn't respond. And this was always curious, like, why doesn't Jesus respond? And when he arrives, Mary and Martha both say to him, if you had only been here, if you had responded sooner. But the the trick of the story is this, that even if Jesus had responded immediately, by the time he got to Mary and Martha, Lazarus had been dead four days. So that two-day delay didn't make any difference. Either way, Lazarus was going to be dead. So what were these two days about? Well, to me, understanding that this is the climax, that this is the height of that rejection, to me, it speaks that Jesus is taking these two days to prepare himself for the final showdown. Because he knows once he goes to Lazarus, once he performs this miracle, the domino chain will begin that will end in his death. And so he is going, he takes those two days to prepare himself to face the cross. Okay, so you got this picture, this structure of how John's gospel is laid out. But here's the interesting part, is that the 11th chapter of John also follows this same plot structure. Let me make the case for you here, okay? A couple little erasures here. Okay. At the very beginning, you have an introduction. John chapter 11 starts by saying, there was a man named Lazarus who lived in Bethany and he had a sister named Mary, the one who washed Jesus' feet, which doesn't actually happen until John chapter 12. And and then there's Martha, his other sister whom Jesus loved. 
These characters are introduced for the first time in John's gospel at this place. Last week, we learned about Mary and Martha, but that was Luke's gospel. In John's gospel, this is the first time they're introduced. And not only are we introduced to people, new characters, we're also introduced to a place, Bethany, which is two miles from Jerusalem. Why is that important? Because Jerusalem is a risky and dangerous place for Jesus. And then we are introduced to the conflict. The one you love is close to dying. This is the conflict that drives the story, the conflict of death. Then the story in John chapter 11 is laid out in three conversations. First, there's the conversation with the disciples. Then there's a conversation with Martha. And then there's a conversation with Mary. And then there's the raising of Lazarus and the rejection of the Jews. So let's start with the rising action. A letter arrives, the one you love is close to death. But in this rising action, this conversation with the disciples, we begin to understand that the conflict of the story is not just about Lazarus's death, but it's about Jesus as well. Because the first question that, G- that, that the disciples ask Jesus is not, why are you waiting two days before going, Jesus? The first question they ask is, why are you going at all? Don't you remember, Jesus? Just a short time ago, those Jews tried to stone you, and now you're going to go back there? Why would you do that? And they argue with Jesus back and forth, and the tension keeps on building and building until finally Thomas, knowing that his master is resolute, says, well, let's just go with him that we might die as well. That's the rising action, this, this building of tension that something is going to happen to Jesus. Now I'm going to skip over the conversation with Martha for just a second, and then comes the conversation with Mary. Mary comes to Jesus, and she says, as I said, she says, Lord... If you had just been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus moved to compassion, says, where have you laid him? And then she sets out to show him where Lazarus' tomb is. And as they walk through the streets, Mary at his side, surrounded by onlookers and mourners, Jesus is moved and he weeps. Now, Best known verse in the Bible, right? Jesus wept. But what does it mean? We don't exactly know what it means. Scholars debate what Jesus was weeping about. But what we do know is the onlookers there in the crowd had two different interpretations. Some of them said, see how he loved him, right? Like they, they, they note the love, but for them, it's an impotent love. See how he loved Lazarus, but he couldn't do anything about it, same as we couldn't. All he can do is cry. But other people who are looking on say, no, it wasn't that he loved him. It was that he didn't use his power. Couldn't this man that made the blind man to see, couldn't he have done something? And so their only conclusion is that it's uncaring power. It's often when we get into debates today about theodicy, you know, about his, you know, how can God allow suffering in the world? These are the two, you know, things where we say, well, either God is love, but he doesn't have power. Or God has power, but he doesn't really care about us. And when Jesus gets to the tomb, he basically says, 
without saying it directly, both these interpretations are wrong. In love and in power, he calls out for Lazarus, come forth from the grave. And Lazarus comes forth still bound in his burial clothes. Now you would think, right? Like that's the climax of the story, right? Like I, we, I've drawn this all wrong. It should go something like this, right? Let me make the case for why I think it's falling action when Jesus calls Lazarus from the grave because that domino tips and the end of the story isn't celebration and wonder at the power that Jesus displayed, his miracles and, and the life of Lazarus. The end of the story is that the Jews who are in attendance, you know, the Jewish leadership, they pull back and they begin to whisper among themselves and they say, if this man keeps going on doing these signs and wonders, if we let him go on like this, they said, everyone will believe in him and the Romans are going to come and they will destroy, take away our holy place and our nation. And so the leader, the high priest Caiaphas stands up and he says, it's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to suffer. And from that time on, the Jewish leaders plot to have him killed. And so the end of the story isn't celebration of Jesus' power and wonder. It's the end of the story is Jesus retreats into the wilderness. His public ministry is effectively over, and he waits in hiding. And as the Passover approaches, all the Jewish people begin to whisper, is Jesus going to come? Is he going to celebrate the Passover among us? And that's the cliffhanger for next week's sermon. That's what we're going to get at next week, right? Well, so let me take you back then to this conversation with Martha. And let me explain why I think it is such a pivotal conversation, a climactic moment in John chapter 11. Martha comes before Jesus and she says word for word, the exact words that her sister said, if you had been here, master, then I know my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus responds to her and he says, your brother will live again. And she says, oh, I know he will someday, you know, on the last day of resurrection, I know he'll rise again. And Jesus says, no, I am the resurrection and the life. And those who believe in me, even though they die, yet shall they live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. I am. Those verses are verses 25, 26. John chapter 11 is just a little bit over 50 verses long. So the exact middle point of John chapter 11 and the exact middle point of John's entire gospel, we have this claim, I am the resurrection and I am the life. This is the pivotal moment, the climax. Everything has been building to this. Every sign, every wonder, every I am statement. I am the living bread, the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the good shepherd. They all point to this, I am the resurrection and the life is what the whole story is about. So let's dig in just a little bit to these words. Whoop. Isn't that fun? I, I, I find 
simple things please me like that, you know. Now, Jamie, when, she, when I told her I was going to be using a whiteboard, she said, are you going to do a bracket? I wish I could figure out how to do this in a bracket style. But anyways, let's start with, this is, this is what I walk through, the claim, the promise, and the question. First, there is a claim. Jesus says, I am. And this can be said of all of his I am statements. There's seven of them in John's gospel here. There's that number seven again. Jesus says, I am. And when he uses those words, I am, he's drawing a deliberate connection back to the divine name revealed in the Old Testament. If you know the story, Moses, when he received a call from God in the burning bush to go back and confront Pharaoh and to lead you know, God's people into the promised land, Moses is kind of worried and he, doesn't, he thinks, you know, people aren't going to listen to me. Who am I? He says, so what am I going to say when people say, who sent you? What is the name of the God who sent you? And God responds, he says, I am who I am. This is what you shall tell the people. I am has sent me to you. And this is my name forever. The name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. I am. Jesus references this same divine name in other gospels as well. Matthew chapter 22, he's in a, or chapter 24, he's in a, he, he's in a conversation with the Sadducees about the topic of resurrection and life. Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. And Jesus says, don't you read your scriptures? Don't you know that Jesus, that the God said, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, not I was. They live forever before him, for God is the God of the living, not of the dead. And so when Jesus says, I am, he is drawing a deliberate connection between himself to the God who has power over life and death, who on multiple occasions and in Israel's story has raised people back to life who are presumed dead. Jesus is saying, that's me. I am. It's a claim of divinity that Jesus is making. Now, I think of those two words, resurrection and life, as synonyms. You know, maybe they are expressing the exact same thing. But one of the commentators I read, Gail O'Day, in her in the New Interpreter's Bible, she suggests that, that resurrection and life, they're, they're similar in meaning, but they're not exactly the same thing. She says resurrection is about what happens in the future when we die. But life is about what happens in the here and now, how we live our lives in light of that promised future. And Jesus is Lord of them both. And then Jesus makes a claim, after he makes his claim, and then he makes a promise. He says, the one who believes in me, even though they die, yet shall they live. And then he says, and the one who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you see the parallel of those two statements? Gail O'Day says this, she says, the two phrases spell out what it means for Jesus to be resurrection and life. For Jesus to be resurrection means that physical death has no power over believers. Their future is determined by their faith in Jesus, not by their death. 
And for Jesus to be life means that the believer's present is also determined by Jesus' power for life, experienced as his gift of eternal life. These words offer a vision to the, of life to the believer in which his or her days do not need to be reckoned with the inevitable power of death, but instead by the irrevocable promise of life with God. They invite the believer into a vision of life in which one remains in the full presence of God, both during life and after death. This is the promise that Jesus makes. I am resurrection and life, and if you believe in me, you will never die. And we have to set that claim and that promise against the main conflict of the story. Do you remember the main conflict of the story? Death. What propels the whole story forward is when Jesus receives a note that says, the one you love is dying. The whole story is about the, you know, about humanity's race against the clock, how we're squeezing every hour, every day to get the most out of life before our time runs up. It's, it's about the, the grief, the pain of losing those we love. And it's about love. You know, we're, we're meant to ask the question, what power does love have up against the grave? Is death inevitable? Is death final? Does it get the last word? And the proclamation of this story is that no, Jesus gets the final word. Scholar, let me make sure I get this name right. Scholar Rudolf Schneckenberger, he writes, the scale of Jesus's act can only be recognized if the bitterness of physical death is not minimized. I read those words and they just hit me, partially because it's been a heck of a week. It's been a heck of a month for our church. We've had a lot of funerals lately. Some of you have tasted quite recently the bitterness of death. And I can't minimize it, nor should I. And nor does Jesus. When Jesus claims to be resurrection and life, he's not minimizing death. He's claiming his victory over it. He's willing to taste the bitterness of death. And I say that for a handful of reasons. One, because he wept at Lazarus's grave. Even though he knew what was coming, he felt the pain, the anguish, the hurt of all those around him. He wept with them. But let me go, let me go beyond that. That Jesus didn't minimize death because he was willing to experience and suffer our death. That as he stood before Lazarus' grave and commanded the tomb to be, the stone to be rolled away, he had to know he knew already that it would only be a short amount of time before a stone was rolled over his grave. He was willing to endure, to taste, not just taste the bitterness of death, but to drink it down to the dregs. The one who claimed to be resurrection and life entered our death so that we might know his life. And this is the good news we believe as Christians, that when Jesus was crucified, his life was not swallowed up in death, 
but rather on the third day when he rose from the dead, death was swallowed up in life. This is what Paul proclaims to the Corinthians. He says, death is now swallowed up in victory. So where, O death, is your victory? Where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. So this is the claim. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And this is the promise. If you believe in me, you will not die, but it will have everlasting life. And then comes a question. And the question is simple. Do you believe this? Martha, do you believe this? And Martha replies, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the son of God, the one who is, was to come and is coming into the world. This is known as the great confession. In all the other gospels, these words are uttered by Peter, but not in John's gospel. In John's gospel, they are spoken by an aggrieved woman against the backdrop of death and loss. And the very center of the story is her confession. Jesus, you are the son of God, the Messiah, the one coming into the world. Now, Martha doesn't really grasp the fullness of that confession, no more than Peter did in the other gospels. Because I know that because when Jesus orders the stone to be rolled away, Martha says, hold on, Lord, hold on. Don't you know it's been four days? That body's going to stink. She doesn't get what Jesus is going to do. And to me, this is actually a word of hope because it tells me that our faith doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be complete for it to be enough. All Jesus asks is, do you believe in this? Do you believe in me? And then he'll work out his resurrection and his life in our life in ways that we could never, ever anticipate. Because he's a God of new beginnings. So this is the question that came to Martha. And it's the question that comes to us. Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that he's the son of God? the Messiah, the one coming into the world, do you believe that he rose from the dead? And so much hangs on our response to that simple question because through our belief, we enter into a life that death cannot destroy. Yesterday at Brad's service, we read 1 Corinthians 13. Laura asked me to read it because it was the passage read for their, um, for their wedding. And when Laura asked to be, for me to read that, I, I found myself thinking it, it, it felt a little bit like serendipity to me because I just read a devotion a handful of days before in our Lenten book, 40 Days Living, Living the Jesus Creed, that some of us are reading for Lent. And I just read a devotion about 1 Corinthians 13. And this devotion by Scott McKnight, it focused on four phrases within that, that chapter of love. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, 
endures all things. 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Now, 1 Corinthians has how many verses in it? 1 Corinthians 13 has 13 verses, which means seven is the exact middle. And Scott McKnight made the observation about this, this, these four phrases. He said, he said, to read them correctly, we have to start from the inside out. That we are able to bear and endure all things only when we hope and believe. It's belief and hope that enable us to bear and endure. And he says, when I talk about belief and hope, I'm not just talking about pie in the sky, you know, belief that if I just believe hard enough, everything will work out exactly the way I want it. That would make us God, he said. It doesn't work that way. He said, Paul's belief and hope is ground, they're grounded in three things. First, God's unending, unstoppable, unconditional love. Second, the fact that Good Friday gave way to Easter morn. Third, the reality that God's spirit is now unleashed in human beings to empower them to become the new creation. Because of the Father's love, the Son's victory, and the Spirit's power, genuine love can believe and hope that someday, somehow, things will change. And so I ask you the question again. Do you believe? Do you hope? At the middle of John's gospel is a claim, a promise, a question, and a confession. In the middle of 1 Corinthians 13, that same promise is repeated, that love believes and hopes all things that love never ends. Do you believe? Because when we do, we enter into a life that death cannot destroy. We enter into a reality that we cannot ever, ever be separated from God's love and mercy. We are invited to know down the root of our toes that Jesus is the resurrection and the life to the glory of God the Father. Amen.